everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Driven by Cause. Now, we've got a great episode for you today, but I'd like a quick minute, if you don't mind, to share some exciting news for our listeners. The nonprofit software solutions you've been searching for are here, and gone are the days of multiple siloed applications, because Ariva's Exceed Further and MaestroSoft are the industry's only all-in-one cloud-based digital fundraising donor relationship management, healthcare, hospitality, and auction software platforms. Now, thousands of nonprofits are making the move daily, not only for the simplicity of use, but also because of how Ariva and MaestroSoft have optimized their operations and allowed them to raise more than ever before. So please visit Ariva.com for uh, slash demo to learn more. And enough of the commercial, let's get started with our program. Got some exciting guests, and so let's get started by joining uh, and introducing my fabulous co-host, Mr. David Blyer. David, how are you today? Hey, Jay. Great to be back. Our episode today is going to be fantastic because we are joined by two guests, Katrina Van Hoos and Otis Fulton. Katrina and Otis are co-authors of a newly released and highly anticipated social fundraising, Mining the New Peer-to-Peer -peer Landscape. Katrina is also the founder and CEO of nonprofit consulting firm Turnkey, and Otis is a national speaker and consultant specializing in the intersection of psychology and philanthropy. Katrina and Otis, thank you for being here today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. I'm gonna I'm gonna get started, Katrina and Otis. We would love for you to share with our listeners some some information about yourselves. Tell us how you both got started in the nonprofit industry. Well, it's sort of an interesting story. Um, I'll start with me and then uh, Otis can dovetail in. Um, 33 and a half years ago, um, I started a company uh, and the only goal was to figure out what to do. I needed a job that I could do sitting down because I grew up on a family farm. And like, that was the, that was the thing. If, if we could just find a job that we could do sitting down, my siblings and I all thought we'd be successful. And we all did find jobs sitting down. Um, so I selected promotional products because at the time it was a weird industry. The nomenclature was strange. Not many people knew how to talk about it. So it was purely picked off a shelf. This is what I'm going to do and started a company. Um, shortly after that, uh, a wizened little lady with the American Cancer Society approached me and, and basically said, I hate all my vendors and I'm going to build my own. And so she did. She took me under her wing. She put me through my paces. She had me, before she would land significant business on me, she had me sign up as a team captain for Relay for Life. I ended up on the leadership committee. I ended up chairing an event. I ended up in regional leadership. And through all that, I was serving the organization as well. And that background and education that she gave me, and it was painful sometimes, um, was really important to understanding what, how it worked. So uh, fast forward, decided promotional products, not so great. Some of the data we were seeing uh, was concerning. And around the same time, my life took a change and I ended up a single middle-aged lady. Um, and then I met Otis and Otis, you want to pick it up? Sure. I had, my career has been in the education industry until 10 years ago when I was on a match.com date. And I met Katrina Van Huss at lunch. So I got into nonprofit world the, the old-fashioned way through a Match.com date. Uh, I'd been on Match.com for about six months, and we had lunch. And that night, I got off Match.com because I need look no further. So Katrina said, uh, describe what you did. 
And uh, being a psychologist, I said, well, you know why that works so well, don't you? And I said, she said, I have no idea. So then I turned into, you know, Ron Burgundy and said, well, I have many leather bound books on that topic. And uh, so <laughs> that started a conversation uh, that's lasted nearly 10 years now. Wow. Well, it's, a, it's certainly not a, uh, we'll say the, the most direct path, but we're glad you two <laughs> found each other. <laughs> that's great. So your newest book was just released in uh, in January of this year. And it's called Social Fundraising, Mining the New Peer-to-Peer Landscape. Uh, and uh, in it, you address why yesterday's peer-to-peer is today's social fundraising. Can you share a definition with our listeners of what you mean by that and uh, how and how you see social fundraising and peer-to-peer, uh, you know, interplay or how, you know, what do they mean in today's terms? And why are they important? So um, you both are software developers, so I'll default a little bit to your language. Um, Peer-to-peer fundraising has a set of business requirements that are written around human beings and the way that they operate, um, the way that they make decisions consciously and unconsciously. In the new world, a lot of people were tending to assume that things were so different, that it was so different, and they were extrapolating that different environment to mean that the humans were different too. Like their actual mechanism, their operating systems were changing, but they weren't. And so this book really helps people translate their old school peer-to-peer expertise into the new environments that we're now faced with. Otis, right. you want to comment on some of that? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, in terms of uh, social fundraising, it's the same and it's different. Traditional recognition, um, uh, putting people on your website and so forth, uh, really didn't it, it, it didn't really mean anything to people who were in, in these social networks because everything that they do were so, is so visible to their friends and family anyway. Many years ago, uh, and I also had uh, cancer society was one of my clients and heart you know heart association and JDRF and all the all the normals right. <clears throat> their their peer to peer was <clears throat> built around circles of friends right. It was all pulling in people that you knew and. You're going to have a walkathon, a jogathon, or something like that. <clears throat> so you went out and found sponsors. Now with social media, you may have people that are quote friends that you've never met. They just have, they're following you, right? They yeah, and you and if they passed you on the street, you'd never recognize each other necessarily. Right? Uh, is that kind of the blending? Is that what kind of what you're talking about? The blend of the old, the old peer to peer and the new social social fund fundraising am i kind of getting that or am i way off track on that no you're not off track so um to to lay a baseline you know otis like he's weaponized me with this psychology so now i'm dangerous right um so what we understand is that most of human behaviors is, is predicated by the situation that people are in not by the way that they are so um when we put them in new environments, like on social media, they behave differently because the environment is different. So, but their inclinations are the same. Their natural responses are the same. In the environment that you're talking about, what's happening is that, for example, for organizations that facilitate and foster and provide the platform for it, um, communities are developing online and they're crossing. Uh, online and offline communities are crossing. So now, for example, a typical team might include people like the the uh, honorary team captain may exist in a rehabilitation center. They may mm -hmm. be in a nursing home. They may not be able to be at the event, but they're fully integrated into the team. Um, uh, likewise, there are situations where the mission or the activity 
collect a group of people with loose connections to each other. And that is incredibly powerful. The biggest change that we see and that is happening now um, is that, you know, we always thought like, if we get them on social media, we've got to move them out. We've got to get their data. We've got to get them in the database. And what we're finding is that they are actively resistant to that movement. And so the answer to that is fine. Let's leave you in platform, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn, wherever it is, yeah. leave you there. But the database needs your handle instead of your email address. You exist as a record, but in a different way. Got it. So those are some of the changes that we're seeing. Thank Katrina, you. That, that just opens us up. I would love for you to share with our listeners, what do you think are some of the best ways to get started on their own social fundraising and peer-to-peer -peer fundraising campaigns? And how can they get their constituents involved and participating? Um, in our the last book that we just did, we wrote the book not so much to convince people to do this, but to help them evaluate whether it's right for them. It may or may not be right for uh, social fundraising. You know, if they don't have a an organizational value of volunteer empowerment, it's probably not right. The DNA is just not going to be good for handling volunteers. Those people are more into logistics. So the first step is to figure out, you know, is this good for us? And, and we, while we don't actively talk people out of it because it's an expensive and heartbreaking endeavor when it, when it fails. So if they do uh, present themselves as that might be a good opportunity in my mind, Otis may have a different opinion. In my mind, the easiest way to dip your toe in is with a uh, a virtual program um, that is community-based, that puts people together in communities to do good, fundraise and take action. And also uh, Facebook fundraising, I think is a really good way to get started. Otis, did you have any other thoughts on that? I talk too much. Otis has to break in or he can't survive. Oh, no, well, Survival yeah, of the fittest I'll, I'll... here when it comes to conversation, Otis. You're on your own. <laughs> I, I... I will talk more later, but uh, uh, no, I, I think that as you said, the Facebook fundraising is the easiest way to to get uh, to get started. Uh, if your organization's not registered with Facebook to do Facebook fundraising, do so immediately, and uh, that's kind of the first step. It's very easy to do, and uh, and take it from there. Nice. Well, well, you brought up um, your book, and after decades of experience and research, you both co-wrote a book called Dollar Dash. The book is The Behavioral Economics of Peer-to-Peer -peer Fundraising. Would you be able to identify your findings and what you discovered about the psychology of why supporters give? And Otis, I'd love for you to jump in on that one too. Yeah, Otis, why don't you describe Dollar Dash versus the new book in psychological terms? I think that's the best rendering. Sure, but you know, uh, behavioral economics deals with nudging people and, uh, and, and so on. And, uh, uh, you know, how to nudge people into doing certain behaviors. So that was really the focus of Dollar Dash. Uh, I think that uh, the new book looks more at uh, what happens after people are engaged with your organization, um, what we know about what keeps people satisfied, what keeps them coming back and so forth. And, uh, you know, that that's that's the big shift that we've made in the last seven years. But but basically, you know, the theme is that uh, it's, it's really not about your your organization, your mission. It's about the kind of satisfaction that people can get from supporting you. So it's really all about all about all about your supporters and focusing on them, not so much your mission. Because you know, there are millions of nonprofits in the United States. And if you just talk about yourself, you're in competition with 
all these other nonprofits, many of which have great missions. But if you talk about what the donor is going to get out of the relationship with the organization, then then you're into a different kind of a, a kind of a story. So in that regard, uh, is, is there anything specific that our listeners can do uh, to uh, to motivate and communicate their messaging successfully with their supporters? Uh, you know, to, the goal, obviously, to build a sustainable and lasting relationship. So what what tip can you give our listeners in that regard? Well, you know, I always talk about the uh, my uh, the sister test. I don't have a sister, but if if you're, uh, uh, I imagine that I do, and I imagine writing my messaging as if I'm talking to my imaginary sister. Uh, so, you know, just just for example, what I say, uh, I'd like you to come over and help me clean out my garage Saturday afternoon. And if you do, I'll give you a twenty five dollar gift certificate to Target. Just not the way you talk to your sister. Uh, so, uh, but if, 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 after we cleaned out the garage, I said, you're the best in the world. I'd like you to have this bottle of wine. You know, I hope you enjoy it because you're the most special person in the world to me. You know, we, we talk about our supporters as being part of our, our, our nonprofits family. And, you know, we, we should live up to that. We, we should treat them like they're our family and we should love on them because, uh, those are the kind of messaging that are going to be heartfelt and, uh, the kind of thing that's going to keep coming, people coming back because they're in a good relationship. Otis, you're a, a, a much sought after copywriter, nonprofit, uh, fundraising, uh, messaging guru. Uh, you've written campaigns for St. Jude's Children's Research uh, Hospital, March of Dimes, Susan G. Komen, uh, USO, dozens of others, on and on. Uh, much of your career has been focused on applying psychology and fun, to fundraising and donor behavior. Uh, can you identify some of the key psychological principles and strategies you use when crafting a case for support and uh, and share some of those with, with our listeners? Uh, sure. You know, I, I, I think the first thing I, I do is I sit down and I think uh, uh, I, I I talk to the folks who are in the organization and I, and I ask them a real simple question. You know, what would happen if your organization went away tomorrow? Then all these things wouldn't happen. And that, that's kind of where you start with any kind of a case for support. You know, you talk about why there's some kind of an, kind of an urgency. You know, urgency is very, very important. Uh, people respond to that. And then, and then you know, you, you, uh, you, you talk about your mission requires their support to, uh, you know, to do whatever it is that you want to do. So th those are kind of the things that you start with. And, uh, and then, you know, you, you try to talk to them. Not like you're the bank. I got something from one of the organizations that we work with. Sometimes I wasn't writing their messaging and it started out. This is to inform you that. Oh. And, you know, that's how my bank talks to me that when I write a bad check, um, uh, not that I write bad checks, but, uh, uh, but um, you know, that's not the way that you want to talk to your supporters. Um, you know, you want to be in these cases for support. You want to be very conversational. You want to use, Short sentences. You want to talk to them just like you're talking to anybody else. And, you know, you want to, you want to, most cases for support, I have to say, are, are pretty boring because they just talk on and on about themselves. But you want to inject some emotion and you want, you want to grab them somehow with, you know, this is, this is what your support is going for. You know, with you, all these great things are going to happen to people, animals, whoever it is. And without you, these great things won't happen. So that, that's kind of the fundamentals that I try to work with. You know, when I, when I do consulting for our auction committees, 
uh, a lot of times they'll present me with a letter that's their ask letter, if you will, for auction items for the for the event. And they'll give me this thing that's like six paragraphs long. And finally, on the seventh paragraph, it'll say, so therefore, we would like, you know, to support us by, you know, by by offering up an auction item that we can sell, you know. And I say, no, you got the ask has got to be at the top. They may never get the paragraph seven, you know. Yeah, ask them in paragraph one and then give them six three, six paragraphs of why they're making a good decision. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but that to me, that seems to be the right approach to that. Uh, would Would you comment on that on, on that philosophy of maybe get the ask up first or so that people know why am I getting this letter in the first place well I tell my clients all the time you know I agonize over every single word that I write I rewrite over and over but but basically as you're saying prepare to be skimmed don't make them read a whole lot before you get to why their support's important and what you'd like to do and why they can help you so yes I love that call to action at the top. Katrina, as the founder and CEO of Turnkey, your company is a leader in strategy and execution for peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. You've expressed that every time you find a problem, you build the perfect team to fix it. You've mm -hmm. also covered the importance of building successful relationships. Share some of the main strategies you use to build a successful collaborative team and why nonprofit CEOs and executive directors should do the same. Well, I won't speak for them, but I'll speak for me. Um, when we face a problem, um, we try and identify it very clearly, and we have a process through which we go. Um, our sales process is actually the way we try and manage it is that regardless of what happens, you walk away with more than you came in with. And what I mean by that is what we really try and evaluate is, are you in a position to actually do this? That's really the question, you know, to help. And, and often, most of the time, the answer is no. We can all say, well, yeah, there's no way you can move this forward. So let's just not, let's find another path. Um, so that's a gift. Um, once we can move forward, you know, we look at our community a little differently. We don't think of ourselves as like, we are a company. No, we are a group of people who know the talents and skill sets of many, many people. They might be employed. They might be retired. They might be working for somebody else. Doesn't matter. We will go ask them, can you lean in on this project? Because you have in your head what we need. We actually hired someone once who was a small particle physicist in a lab at Virginia Tech because we needed someone who could just manage the data without knowing what the data was. That was our goal on that thing. It's like we want to know from someone with no preconceived notions about the rightness or the wrongness of anything, show me what's important. And uh, we hired a kid. He came out. He did it. He's like, I don't know what these things are, but wow, they're important. He had identified team captains. So that's what we do. We often, uh, I am accused of not allowing people to retire peacefully because, you know, I'll give you an example. The uh, chief development officer and operating officer of the National Multiple Sclerosis Society thinks he just retired. He hasn't retired. I am coming after him because he has too much stuff in his head to go out to pasture. Cannot happen. Love it. That's great. Love it. Well, well you both have shared interesting uh, ideas and sentiments around community and specifically how it pertains to nonprofits. Uh, can you define the term community in this context and share how it can have long-term effects on fundraising success? Sure. Well, you know, a lot of times nonprofits uh, define community as the people that are on their email list. And um, I would say that's not really a community. Those are the people that are on your email list because you can do two things. You can talk to them and sometimes they'll talk back to you. 
But, you know, a real community is uh, are people that have some interest, uh, common interest. Maybe it's your mission. Maybe it's other things. And they can talk to each other. And I would elaborate on that. You know, my experience in Relay for Life, and Jay, you probably saw this too, both at Relay for Life and in the gala committees. Um, you know, what was so powerful about them was that second element. They were able to talk to each other, and that reinforced their identity as being attached to the mission. Um, a Relay for Life committee spent, you know, a year together um, talking constantly, reinforcing the idea that they were committed to finding cures for cancer. When in-person events took a hit, um, they are coming back. But I, I think we're making a mistake by not thoughtfully building around the idea that if we can put them in situations to talk more to each other, whether it's online or in-person, we are all more well-served. And we're seeing that bear out um, inside Facebook challenge groups and the like. I believe it was just last year, the American Cancer Society uh, set up a Facebook group for each one of their 90 plus events around the, the country. And 90% uh, of the people that uh, joined these these groups were, were new. So it was a great acquisition device. But the thing that really struck me was the average person uh, posted or responded to a post. That, that's just not you know hitting the like button. The average number of engagements was 21 uh, engagements per person. You know, that's a lot of interaction and, uh, you know, just goes to show that if you set up the right situation for people, that they will engage with people who uh, they have a common interest with. We have covered a lot of territory and uh, you've shared a lot about your work. So uh, I'm curious, what is something perhaps uh, unique that our audience would be uh, interested in hearing? I think we should. Uh, let me do it for you, Otis, and you can do it for me. Awesome. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about that, but go. Okay, yes, that's great. Say. Let's I have do no it. Idea what you're say. <laughs> so Otis is right. okay. ten, and uh, played basketball at UVA on their first NCAA championship team. It's interesting living with someone that tall. Very interesting. Well, I I, I appreciate that you uh, uh, you said the NCAA championship. It was oh, actually just right. the AC just the ACC championship team. I don't want to say I, I get was on the NCAA championship, uh, but. Uh, uh, something uh, something that uh, surprises people. One of us appeared on an episode of American Gladiator way back in the day. Let me just say it wasn't me. So anyway. Oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, my God. That's surprising. That is amazing. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah. yeah after I mentioned that, nobody cares about the ACC championship thing. It's like, wow, American Gladiator. That's, <laughs> yeah, okay. that's, yeah, that's a lot that really puts you on the map. I got to go that's on right. YouTube. I wish they had YouTube. and uh, we No, not back then. They didn't. Thank God. What do you wish we had asked you? Uh, we got oblique to it. And that is, you know, what's the most important thing for us to be successful in the future as a social good community? And um, and it is community. It is, in fact, understanding how community works and how to operationalize it. We, we've often used it as a gauzy, happy balloons and unicorns word. And it, it shouldn't be that. It is a system. It is a process that we can identify, that we can build inside uh, the markers for it inside a database. Um, and we need to treat it like that. We need to treat it like the, the hard code that it should be in terms of how we build our events and our interactions with constituents. Wow. Fantastic. One of the questions I was I was going to ask you somewhere along the line here, I'm going to just ask it right now. <clears throat> um, is there any difference between asking somebody for a financial commitment or asking them to donate something for an auction item as an auction item? Uh, you know, we, we, people are used to being asked for money. 
Yep. Uh, is there a different psychology, a different way to ask people to donate something that might be a, you know, join them in their hobby, you know, go bike riding with them, if they're into bike riding or if they're into boating, you know, uh, take, a, take a boat ride. Or if they like to cook, come off differently than would you support us financially? Otis, you want to swing at that? Um, I'll be interested to see what, hear, hear what you say too. But uh, um, yes, uh, because it, it really is a personal ask. It, it's recognizing that that person has something special that they're going to bring to the fore. And any anytime you get more personal with people, you're going to be more successful. You know that's that that's why social fundraising works so well. It, it, you know, people uh, uh, who ask pe other people to sponsor them to do this or that. You know, when they when they when people sponsor them, and and we know that twenty five or thirty percent of people who are asked say yes. Uh, they're not really donating to the mission at that point. They're really supporting their friends. So when you're when you're asking someone for something personal like that. You know, they're they want to say yes in order to support you, mm -hmm. Katrina. Um, I think that you know, there's so many different ways to engage. Donation is one. I don't even think that's the highest level of engagement in my mind. The highest level of engagement is when you use your your persona, your personal self, to advocate for the organization in some ways. Um, so high level fundraisers, volunteer fundraisers, to me, they're on the high end of the spectrum. People who who were, uh, act on legislative priorities, they're on the high end of the spectrum. Um, so it's all through there and people move back and forth all the time. And I think giving people opportunities like what you just described, really important to solidifying their identity as attached to the mission. You know, sometimes we open the opportunity um, that that's their only opportunity. Maybe the only thing I can do is make a wooden chest and donate it to the silent auction, you know, and that gives you opened an opportunity for me to do that. So I think it's important in a lot of different ways. Thanks. Thanks, John. I've always wondered, I mean, I, I've been doing my consulting for years and I, if you ask somebody to give up something uh, of value, it should be something that they want to do. And so, for example, if they have a boat and you ask them to give someone a boat ride, so the old saying goes, the happiest day in a boat owner's life is the day they buy their boat and the second happiest day is the day they sell it, right? And, and, and in between, they're looking for a reason to use it, right? So if you ask somebody who owns a boat, they wanna, they're proud of their boat, they don't want to spend time with their boat, would you donate it for our auction? You're more likely to hear yes, because they said, sure, I just got myself one more opportunity to use it, right? That's yeah. different than would you pull some money out of your wallet? So that's why I was wondering, you know, how you felt. Yeah. And it sounds like, it sounds like you, and you, you both nailed it. It's personal. You know, it's a yeah. chance to give them them personally rather than just, you know, an abstract amount of, of right. financial. So thank you. You know, Jay, you asked the question, what else did, did we wish you'd ask? I will say one thing, if you'll allow it. Um, sure. uh, social fundraising has been um, uh, cascaded a bit in that the people who donate are often donating through the peer leverage of the volunteer fundraiser. And so we looked at those people as like really hard to bring along. And until the software, like what you guys have developed to the point that we could do that cost effectively, you know, mm -hmm. by using automations, it was too hard to bring them along. But what we know now is that we can bring them along through messaging that helps them uh, change their idea of themselves as to someone committed to a mission, uh, to a good person, a caring person, a nurturing person. We can do that cost effectively now. And so one of the things that we're seeing, and I, I'm hearing it said out loud more, is that the um, 
the leading metric on social fundraising has always been revenue, but we encourage our clients to look at uh, not just revenue, but look at it as if you're buying a list, right? So what you have is a bunch of volunteers who are committed to your mission going into their peer networks and qualifying your list. And you get paid for them to qualify your list. And when you compare that to direct response, it's really striking. So I think that things have changed and we're starting to see the metrics um, that nonprofits are paying attention to change. It is an acquisition device. We can bring them along. It is pre-qualified for wealth and willingness to give. So I look at social fundraising as a lead generation device that loads our databases and is intimately connected to the other revenue channels. National Multiple Sclerosis are the only people I know who've done this particular study, and that is where did our direct response people initially come from? And for them, the answer is 40% came from their social fundraising channels. That's mm. huge. That's huge. So anyway, I'll quit beating that that drum. No, no was great. Katrina, I, I would tell you, do not stop beating that drum. Okay. It's, also, it's not just about <laughs> revenue. It really is about donor acquisition because it's a peer relationship and they're reaching out to their friends. Yes. Their friends should have an interest in what they're doing anyways and if the organization yes. has the ability that is providing them immediate notifications on the person that's giving on behalf of their friend they can do an outreach and they can learn more about the organization and yes. ask would you like to learn more about what your friend's doing i, I love it don't d please don't ever stop okay me. well let me let me also say i read a little bit about your platform and i was deeply intrigued because what happens typically in a social fundraising endeavor is like we collect all the donations we collect all the data and then we stare at it for like three months and then we fight with the other departments about what we're going to do with it. And like, you know, well, the welcome series, no, it's not right. You know, and it's just very disjointed. The platforms are separate and you know, the data is separate. Um, I'm very intrigued whether you see um, a speedier reaction because your platform makes it easier and makes it the normal course of events instead of like that. we got to have a fight first. We got to upload. We got to download. We got to do all this. What, what is your experience there? Yeah, I, I this could be a longer conversation, but I love it. And, and immediate means instantaneously. And why? Katrina, if you built a peer-to-peer -peer fundraising page and you sent this out to your friends and you're and you, you know, write that powerful message, this is why I'm doing it, you put that link. One, it takes them back to that organization's website. So it's not just an outreach like a GoFundMe, but it's bringing mm -hmm. them back to the website. You're giving a donation. So if I give the donation to you, Katrina, and I submit, submit, immediately and instantaneously, you, Katrina, get a notification. The staff gets a notification that David Blyer just gave. And they also get a notification that it was based upon your peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. I get a notification with a thank you acknowledgement receipt and instantaneously, and I can pick up the phone because this is cloud-based and I can see immediately their phone number and I can call them up and I can say, hey, I want to thank you on, on giving our organization that donation on behalf of Katrina. <clears throat> That's instant. Wow. Now, where you can't because maybe the executive director or the development director are out and they're raising money or in their meetings or whatever with your staff to just print out a report easily look at all the donations. You could segment that out, whether it's Monday to Wednesday, 
divide them up depending upon maybe the level of donations. It's one thing to receive today acknowledgements. It's another thing to receive that phone call. That phone call, what we've seen is everlasting. Somebody that's getting that acknowledgement level of just a phone call and a thank you, you could be assured that they're going to give another donation next time. Yeah, I always, I always tell clients you can never say thank you too early or too often. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you know, you re you solved a problem that uh, most people don't even recognize because they'd already cast aside the um, the volunteer fundraiser acquired donor, yeah. and you're taking it like, no, we're not casting them aside. We're going to reach out and grab them. And so, Otis, it feels like the relationship transfer is happening faster here than typically. Like usually, three months later, they'll get an acknowledgement. Well, they maybe get the acknowledgement immediately, but. Um, three months later, then they start to cultivate them to bring them the relationship to the organization or the mission, as opposed to the volunteer fundraiser. Is that the way you see it, Otis? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's like when a person has a heart attack. It's 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 the immediate time that's the most important. If you don't reach out to that person within forty eight hours, you've squandered an opportunity. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it really is the immediacy and so forth. And I love what Jay said. You can't you can't thank people too many times. Research shows that over and over again. So that, that, that that's hugely important. We, we see that sometimes with with auction uh, committees. They'll spend four months gathering items for their event. And then once the event's over, of course, the people that attended the event get a thank you letter along with their statement. That's relatively immediate. They're getting it within a week or two after. But the donors are getting a thank you letter four or five months after they donate the item. They don't even know they don't remember right. donating the item. Yeah. So you've got to you've got to send the thank you letters out the next day or within a week of when you got the auction item. That's the too early part I was talking about. And then thank them again when the event is over. Say, by the way, you know, we want to let you know that your item helped us achieve our goal of raising $145,000 for cancer care or adoption or whatever it might be because that's the beginning of the ask for the next year. Agreed. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that you touched on it, Jay, that, that that's the reason that 70 some percent of people uh, who make a donation never make a second donation. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I, I often talk about, it's really not the first donation. That's the important one. You know, it, it may be an impulse buy that they, they got struck by the mission one time and uh, you know, they, they kind of on impulse made, made a donation. It's the second donation. That's the important one. Because then, then they're showing some level of commitment uh, that you can really work with and, and build. And I, and I think the whole thing about technology is like what you said, Katrina, about one single source. Everything is going into one database. Um, the other thing you mentioned, like Facebook, the difference when you have the right technology in place, if they're on your website and they're giving a donation, one of the important things needs to be in these nonprofit organizations is when that donor clicks submit, that they're still on their website. Too <laughs> many of them are being pushed off the website and then they're not. So creating awareness. So not only is it about donor acquisition, but it's also about site engagement because I know we are so busy today and we talk about immediate. If I'm getting an acknowledgement immediately, if I'm staying on their website and I want to decide to either look at something that they're giving me the direction through their website. This is what's really relevant and what's going on. I mean, there's so many other factors, but it's not just one thing. And that's where the technology can really advance these nonprofits, even when they have small staffs. It doesn't have to be these large organizations that have multiple staffs, but it's really giving them that ability to really cultivate those donors or new yes. donors. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you both for your time today. That was great. We'll be right back after this.
We are a team that has had an enduring influence on the nonprofit industry for more than three decades. We pride ourselves on developing and delivering technology with a purpose. Software born of a genuine understanding and passion for cause. We are relentlessly dedicated to our clients' success. We are with our clients for good. We are Ariva, tech with purpose, driven by cause. Ariva is the trusted advisor and market leader of fundraising, donor relationship management, and auction software and services. Exceed further, our evolutionary all-in-one digital fundraising and donor relationship management software is helping nonprofits worldwide further their mission, transform fundraising, and cultivate relationships with donors and constituents. Our Maestro Auction virtual, live, and silent auction software, text-to-bid, virtual and mobile bidding software, and text-to-fund, text-based donation software are helping nonprofits raise billions of dollars through thousands of virtual fundraising events, charity auctions, and galas. Visit Ariva.com and reach out today and see how Ariva can help your nonprofit organization go further. Hi, everyone. Well, welcome back. For the next part of our show, we're going to hear from you, the audience. It's time for Ask the Maestro. Jay, what question do you have for us today? Well, David, for Ask the Maestro, we've had some great questions that have been coming in lately. Uh, but uh, this question is from Bridget, and she writes in saying, I'm having difficulty uh, or getting volunteers to help with my fundraisers. Do you have any tips on trying to get my volunteers to become uh, fundraisers or be part of our fundraiser? And you know what? This is a great question. Uh, and I think this is one we ought to toss to Katrina and Otis. What do you guys think? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'll take the first swing and then Otis, you lay in. I think that um, the way we initially touch those potential volunteer fundraisers is really important. A lot of times we think that um, we should um, make a very oblique ask, reference fundraising. But, you know, really, at the end of the day, it is fundraising. Like, that is how you make a difference. And to say that up front, just uh, we recently um, worked with an auctioneer, Jay. And uh, one of the things that we discussed a lot is the way they show up at auction is really important. Like we can't pretend it's just a dinner and a dance. You know, it is a fundraiser. That's why we're here. Mm -hmm. And so I think that often we recruit volunteers without telling them that that's what we want them to do. And that means we can recruit probably more, but of uh, lower average quality. So if we're upfront, we say, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. We attract them with the mission and we use techniques that maybe Otis can talk about, about who they are to bring in people who are likely to say yes to volunteer fundraising. Otis? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've often written uh, messages to, to fundraisers and it said, hey, you saw your first donor today. It's you. You saw him in the mirror when you brushed your teeth. So, you know, may, may, making a kind of an overt ask is, 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 is fine. Katrina was talking uh, at length earlier about uh, uh, this idea of a pre-qualified list. You know, when, when, uh, when, when you've got a volunteer fundraiser, uh, they're, they're, they're qualifying the list for you, people who may, you know, be animal lovers or people who may want to, you know, uh, house the homeless or whatever. So uh, they're really qualifying your list based on the friends they have. I, I love it. I tell you, it was, I feel a little bit like I'm in the choir here with you guys because so much of what you say 
are things that I've been saying for years. I don't know why I've been saying them. I've just been saying them. And apparently, I'm, apparently some of them actually have been right. But you you started off, Katrina, by talking about, you know, working with the auctioneer and it, it make sure people know they're coming to a fundraiser. I always tell clients, don't invite people to a dinner and inflict a inflict an auction on them. You know, you they need to come prepared. You know, yes. uh, they need to be thinking about it, right? Even promote the items ahead of time. I mean, make, yes. when they walk through that door, you want them already primed and ready to spend money. You don't want them coming yes. and say, oh, apparently there's an auction. I can buy a trip to Bali here. Well, you know, that's you don't want that to be an instantaneous decision. You want that to yes. be a thoughtful decision that you've been thinking yes. about for a couple of weeks. So yes, I, I love it. And then and uh, it, and Otis, I tell people to peel the onion from the inside. Basically, is the strongest part of the onion is the middle, and that's you. And then it's immediate family, then it's extended family, and then it's neighbors and coworkers, and you peel out. And by the time you get to the outside of the onion skin, there's no flavor there anymore. You're not going to get anything. And that's, those are called total strangers. Uh, I always tell people, work from in. Make your who list first, not your what list. You know, what, who do you know first? And then figure out what they can give or what they can do. So uh, you guys, you, we're so, it's so far in sync here. I love it. Uh, I wish we had more time to talk, but I think we're pretty much done. Uh, so wow, what a what a what a great uh, what a great couple of guests you are. We sure appreciate it. Well, thank you. Well, David, as the time would say, that's uh, that that's it for Ask the Maestro. Yeah, well, thank you, Jay. And I also want to especially thank Katrina and Otis for being here with us today. You shared so many unique ideas and stories. It was fantastic to have you uh, both join us. I, I can't thank you enough for that and the information that you provided to our listeners. Excellent joy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Make sure you subscribe to stay up to date on all the new episodes and content. I also want to give you a special thank you for our sponsors, Ariva and Microsoft, who are dedicated to their missions. We're so proud to be working with them on the show. And last, but certainly not least, thank you to all of you, our fantastic listeners. We hope you'll join us next time on Driven by Cause and make it a great day. Thank you.